Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, just before we get started on this very special episode of the best of Comedy Central, I just want to let you know that our show was just invited to the New York Comedy Festival. We'll be there November 5th and 6th doing live podcasts on Saturday and Sunday at 3 p.m. at the historic Friars Club where I'll be interviewing Jeannie and Jim Gaffigan, Lisa Lampanelli, Gary Gullman, Robert Kelly, and more. I hope you can come and see one of these live shows. And if you want tickets, you can call the Friars Club at 212-751-7272. That's 212-751-7272. We're really proud to be a part of this festival. This year it has amazing acts like Louis C.K., Jerry Seinfeld, John Stewart, and the legendary Bruce Springsteen. And as a bonus for all of you in the tri-state area during this weekend, I'm going to be giving away free tickets to both shows on Saturday and Sunday at the Friars Club. Just tweet me a photo of what your face looks like when you're listening to the sound of my voice at Barry Katz, and hopefully you'll be a winner. So I look forward to seeing everybody there who listens to the show. Come by, check it out. Should be a lot of fun. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very excited today because we've got something really, really unique for you, which I like to call the best of Comedy Central. 
where I've taken three of the most influential people in the business who just happen to work at Comedy Central who I've interviewed, Doug Herzog, Kent Alterman, and Jonas Larson. Before I get started, I want to tell you I'm so grateful for all of you and all the support that you've given this show. And I tell you honestly, without you, this show is nothing. So thank you so, so much. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce the first of the big three of Comedy Central, a guy who I started with in the business. He's the former president of MTV, Comedy Central, where he launched The Daily Show, South Park and Colbert, to being the president of Fox, where he launched shows like Malcolm in the Middle, among others, and then he became the president of USA, where he launched Monk. Presently now, he is the president of Viacom Entertainment Group, overseeing Spike TV, TV Land, multiple networks, including the one we're talking about today. I'd like to introduce some clips from the former president of Comedy Central, Doug Herzog. I believe it was 1999. We're in the middle of production of a little show called Action that Doug Herzog greenlit while he was at Fox. As the story goes, he had two calls he had to make that day. He had to make a call to Chris Carter to cancel his science fiction series. And he had to make a call to Jay and I to cancel Action. Because the ratings at the time were getting about 8 million people. And back then, 8 million people was not very good. So I get the call. I connect Jay on the call. I don't know what's going to happen on the call. And Doug says, listen, I'm sorry to tell you guys, I have to cancel the show action. Jay Moore goes ballistic on the phone. He's like, Doug, come on, man. You got us on Thursday night after this cartoon family guy that you put on. What are you doing putting on family guy on Thursday night? And we have to follow that. We're a live action show. Why don't you put us on on Tuesday nights after that 70s show? And Doug replied, Jay, Jay, I can't do that. That 70s show, that's a family show. I can't do that. It's a family show. Jay's like, what the fuck are you talking about a family show? The other night I saw a whole group of people around the kitchen table eating hash pot brownies. And Doug yelled back into the phone, yes, Jay, but they were doing it as a family. That's a good story. And that's true. But it's not my favorite action story. My favorite action story is when we were trying to convince Jay to do it. He, he was really, he didn't want to do it. He had a lot of things going in the movie business. He had, a, he had some momentum going. And he sits down with Joel Silver, right? And he had just, he had done Go and some other kind of indie kind of thing. I try to get him to the meeting. He finally agrees to go to the meeting. And it's a meeting at Joel Silver's office. And we go there, and it's just him and Chris Thompson, the executive producer and creator of the show. Now, this is something that you may not know. So we get to the meeting, and it's incredible because Joel Silver's office is like a museum. There's posters everywhere. Everything he's that... the guy, and he's, he's the producer in movies at this time. And the main character of action is modeled, obviously, after Joel Silver. So we get in this office, and... Immediately, Joel starts pacing back and forth, and he says, listen, I can't believe you don't want to do this. Let me show you something. He takes all the lights down, and there's this huge old flat-screen TV, the ones that were a foot back, and he has these speakers. He turns everything up. All of a sudden, the trailer for The Matrix starts playing. Nobody's ever seen the trailer for The Matrix. The place is shaking. The blinds are shaking. The sound system, yeah, the memorabilia was shaking. I was shaking. <laughs> he finishes that, and then he goes into his 
pitch for Jay. He says, Jay, what are you doing, right? Like, and Jay says, I'm really, uh, this movie thing is going pretty well. He goes, well, what kind of movies? And he says, go. And there was a couple other movies he'd made. Picture perfect, Jerry Maguire. And he goes, what are you, fucking Parker Posey? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. He's offering you a starring role in a TV show. You want to do these indie films? So you get the job at Fox. Tell us about that. I, I think the thing I really feel is if I had to do it again, I would have done it a little differently. I don't know that I would have liked it anymore. I don't know that I would have been any more successful. I don't know that I would have lasted any longer. But, you know, you got to come into those jobs. You better come into a job like that knowing you want it and you, you want it bad and you want to win because it's fastballs of the chin all day. And, you know, there's only one way to play that game. And so in, in that regard, I, was, I wasn't quite prepared. I had spent zero time in network television before that. I always say that, you know, there's three kinds of people. There's the ones that tread water. There's the, you know, the people who are sharks. And then there's the really good swimmers. And I always thought of you as a really, really good swimmer. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate that. I, some, some, some of that I forgot when I got there. When you're working on cable television, there's not the process like there is a network in terms of green lighting shows. In network television, basically, there's a pilot season. Is it a situation where you screen them all first and then you put the ones you don't want in a pile and the ones you like in a pile and you go back and look at them well, again? Uh, by the way, I only did this once, Barry. <laughs> and I was half unconscious when I did it. So, And it was a long time ago. But we screened them and then we... Then you start moving things around on the board, and that happens for days. You know, Rupert comes in, and he moves everything around. He takes the Simpsons off or cops off. Let's not do that anymore. And you know, then you wait till he leaves the room, and you put him back on. And uh, Now, does somebody tell you to put them back on after he leaves? Or? Yeah, Peter. Peter goes, let him do whatever he wants, and then, you know. Take me through the end, because technically you were not fired. Right. Doesn't mean I wouldn't have been over time. You would have been over time. <laughs> you know that. Well, everybody, everybody is, so everybody why not is. me? But you're a guy who's rarely been fired. I've never been fired. So the only thing close to being fired is then. This is the, clo this is the closest. And so yes. probably professionally was one of the lowest times in your life. Absolutely. Uh, I spent almost a entire calendar year not working. So I left Fox. It was uh, the it was March of 2000. So that first internet connection uh, correction had just happened. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, a little bit of the bubble burst. But everybody was still pretty excited about the internet. Uh, I had people calling me up every day going, I got this site. I mean, every mogul in Hollywood, everyone. Uh, you know, they're starting these sites and they want me to be the front man and they're, we're going to get rich. And I didn't know anything except that none of it made sense to me. I was like, how are we going to get rich again? We're just going to, Eddie Murphy's going to make a two minute film and we're going to put it on the internet and he's going to, we're not going to pay him anything. And. <laughs> Everybody's going to watch, and okay. So I just didn't get it. Uh, and it took me a good part of the year, you know, then as the internet thing began to shrivel up and go away. And I arrived back at, like, I want to be back in cable television. That's where I'm comfortable. That's where I think I should be. And that's where I want to be. And quite frankly, it was kind of lucky that the USA Network called because I was looking. I needed a job. You know, we, uh, we had a couple of singles, then we hit it out of the park with Monk. In my mind, it was one of the first shows that was dramedy. It was, it was like, Columbo, really, what it, what it was. And I'm glad you said that, because I think in television, as a president of networks, you realize that there's ideas that come about that are extraordinarily unique and original, and the formula is completely original and different. And then there's ideas similar to Monk, which was like Columbo, or 30 Rock, which essentially is the Mary Tyler Moore show with Tina Fey as Mary 
Alec Baldwin as Lou Grant Lou and Tracy right, Morgan right, as Ted right. Knight. I love the show, but the formula is a formula that's been tried and true before. Did you realize that when you were greenlighting, hey, this is just Columbo, but with a different kind of thing here? A little bit. And it, you know, that actually, you know, that made me not so excited about it originally. That script had been about it. it was an ABC script. It had actually been at USA for a while. But we knew it was kind of old-fashioned. It was very original, but, you know, sort of traditional in the same way. And I'll never forget, you know, a few weeks before we put it on, FX put on The Shield. And we thought, oh, my God, we're fucked. <laughs> Is this what the world wants, right? The, this, you know, the bad guy, anti-hero? They're going in a completely edgy, like... And Monk was the complete opposite of that. We're like what are we going to do? And whatever it was, you know, the audience responded to it immediately. And there was an audience out there for this show and it worked and it was, it was great. I want to go back to the MTV days because you're starting an MTV at a time when the network was only like three years old. It was, it was raging though. 1984, I got there. Video music was raging and MTV was the all powerful thing. So you get there in 84. So I first started doing the news stuff and then uh, they brought us up one day to a conference room and said, you know, people are only watching for a couple minutes at a time. You know, sort of the novelty's worn off. And so if they don't see a video they like, they change the channel. So now we've got to have a reason for them not to change the channel. We need to do traditional television shows, half-hour shows, so that they stay around for the whole half hour. And Bob Pittman, who was running the channel at that point, said, okay, we're going to do a game show. Uh, we're going to do a dance show. And we're going to figure out how to do a weekly news show. Was, now, wasn't there a fourth thing, a reality show? No, that was later, too. So okay. the first three shows was Remote Control. Yeah, with, uh, with uh, Ken, Ken Ober and, and Colin, Colin Quinn. Quinn with Adam Sandler and, and Leary. Leary. Yeah. You know, Sandler was my find. I went to, uh, what was Tenkin's place? Um, uh, comic Strip. I went to the Comic Strip to see Richie, somebody else. Rich, Richie Tenkin's place. Yeah. Richie, yeah, I went to see somebody else showcase. And Sandler gets on stage. And he's got sweatpants on and a T-shirt and sneakers with no socks. And he's still a student at NYU. And he does – and it was also – this was like at the time the Beastie Boys were, uh -huh. you know, just starting to get huge. And I thought, he's, 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 the, he's one of those guys. He's the, he's the comedian Beastie Boy. We should put him on MTV. And, and, I, and then I followed Sandler out to the bar. I gave him my business card. Called me the next day, came to see me, then I sent him down, and then, you know, I think Quinn sort of vouched for him a little bit. Quinn knew him a little bit. And, and if I'm not mistaken, that was Adam's first. He had done one, he had, he, uh, he had actually had a couple, he did a couple of episodes of Cosby as a friend of Theo's, Got where it. he was just one of the kids in the crowd. Got so it, it. wasn't, it wasn't his, his official debut, but uh, it's pretty close. He's still at NYU. Tell me about Mike Judge and how things got started there. Well, Mike made this short film, which, you know, uh, Abby Turkuli, who was running the on-air promo department at MTV, had seen it, I think, at a film festival. He fell in love with it, and he brought it back, and he showed it to us all. And then we actually took it out to focus groups. And it was the first time in a focus group where after we showed something to these kids, the kids were like, can I buy that? <laughs> like, I'll buy that right now. Uh, and so I think we were trying to sort of figure out what to do with it. And then we came up with this idea of having them sort of you know, make fun of videos, uh, which was brilliant. But, uh, you know, Mike was, Mike was, Mike was fantastic. And the show was fantastic. And it still makes me laugh. I love, for me, I always loved the, when they were talking about over the videos better than anything. Cause it was, you know, that's what we did all day at MTV. Anyway, we were just sitting at the TVs, looking at these horrible videos. Some of the horrible, there were some great ones, but some of the cheesier ones and just making fun of them all day. When you got the comedy central the first time, right. I want you to tell the South park story. It was made as a video Christmas card 
uh, Brian uh, Graydon uh, was had a development pod at Fox, and he asked these guys who were working for him, these young guys, Matt and Trey, if they would. He had seen something they had done, an animated short they had done in college, uh, not too dissimilar. And he said, "Can you can you turn that into a video Christmas card for me?" Which they did, which was then sent out to all his friends as a Christmas card on VHS, and it kind of went viral in an in an era before there was virals. People saw it, went crazy for it. So it comes to the attention of Debbie Liebling, who is running Comedy Central Development here in Century City, Los Angeles. And I'm out here, and she says, I got to show you something. And she pulls me into a conference room. She puts the VHS in, and she runs it, and she plays The Spirit of Christmas. So she showed it to me. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. I still think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I watched it, and then I said to her, could you, could you play that again? And she played it again, and I said, you know, I don't think we can put that on TV, but we should be in business with these guys. Now, I was wrong because we did put that on TV, and it, it, it succeeded wildly. And then Debbie, you know, I said, go get them. Let's, we got to do this. Like, we just have to do this. Now, did we know it was going to be as brilliant as it has remained? No. Did, did we you, know it was going to be as successful as it became? No. We just knew it was really funny. It made us laugh. And there was no question that it was somewhat controversial and attention-getting. And we thought we could use a little bit of that at Comedy Central, a place that nobody was paying attention to. So th- at the very least, we thought, we'll get some attention with this. Got it. And so you do you have them shoot a pilot? We had them shoot a pilot, which was the anal probe, the famous <laughs> anal probe episode. And famously... We did not love the pilot. We were a little disappointed. I remember they came to New York and they they had print. I wish I still had them. They had printed up, uh, I guess, where they went to school in Colorado. They graded their report cards like check, check plus, check minus. Like those are the grades you got. It wasn't A, B, C, D, F. And they came in with check minus T-shirts on. Uh, And so we sent it back and they kind of rejigged the pilot. um, And it was better. And then that was that. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks of giving them notes, we also got the sense we should just get out of the way. In network television, there's normally what's called a current executive. We, we had no such thing. We didn't have a standards department, by the way, at that wow. point at Comedy Central. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is we actually we actually said, you know what, when we put this on, we better have a standards person go out and find one. There's obviously a guy in an office with a better suit than you have looking down at you saying, Doug, what the fuck are you doing here? Well, that was the brilliance, truthfully. At the time, Comedy Central was was co-owned, was a co-venture between Time Warner and Viacom, and more specifically, HBO and MTV. So having two bosses meant sort of like having no bosses. And so we were left to our own devices, and that's how South Park happens. Because nobody says no. How soon before the renegotiation call? It was pretty quick. We were paying them nothing because they were just two guys from Colorado, and then the thing took off like a house on fire. You know, and our notes, you know, were mostly standards issues over time. We were never like, that's not funny. Although I am, again, here I am, the idiot, uh, early on, I, I think even actually during the pitch phase, they're like, so we're going to kill Kenny every week. And I was like, wait, that's not funny. Like, like <laughs> people aren't going to like that. Like, that's not funny, right? And they're looking at me like I have three heads, and I'm like, I'll just be quiet and let them kill Kenny every week because they know better than me, and they did. You took a risk again, and you put the first roast on Comedy Central with Drew Carey. Tell us about the beginnings of that. I felt comedy needed its own night and its own live event. I didn't think the world was ready for a comedy award show. 
apparently still isn't. <laughs> and I always loved the Dean Martin roasts growing up. And I used to go to the Friars roasts, uh, the luncheons, uh, when I lived in New York, and I loved those too. And so I wanted to find a way to do a roast on Comedy Central. And one of the things about these roasts, if you've ever been to a taping of the roast, it's fascinating in the sense that out of 100% of the content that night, probably 70% or 60% is is a lot of bombing it looks like they're all killing and people are always asking look what did you leave on the cutting room floor and what don't you wear and what's too dirty to wear i said nothing's we the, the our our filter is funny not funny and if it's funny no matter how filthy or awful it is we try and get it in the show now there are occasions where people cross a line where we're not willing to cross and we leave those things out, but it's it, it's pretty rare. And we, we we if it's funny, we try and leave it in there. I wanted to talk a little bit about Craig Kilborn, John Stewart. So I was very angry with you years ago because there was a – we were doing – Craig Kilborn had been hired to do The Daily Show by myself. Cut to we are doing a – we are doing a test run uh, before we went – like the week before we went on the air. So we're down on the set. And uh, Craig's running through the show, and his guest for the night, his test guest, is Jeff Ross. And uh, he kind of, you know, it's not a, it's this is not a good rehearsal, this is not a good run through, and it's not a good interview. And you pull me aside and you say, "He is ruining comedy." <laughs> <laughs> and I was very angry with you, Barry, because I'm like, I'm like five minutes from putting this thing on the air, and now you've just told me he's going to bring comedy down single handedly. This is <laughs> the way I remember it. You pulled me aside and you said, Barry, tell me honestly, what do you think about this guy? Tell me honestly. And I said, this guy is a sports center guy. He's funny on sports center because there isn't anybody really that funny on sports center. But you're putting him in a situation where you're making him in the chair. It's his show. And you're asking him to have the skills and I don't think he has those chops, and I think he's killing comedy here. I didn't take that well. <laughs> I, ne I never, I never, this is the first time I've known. I was, I was very angry about that for a while. The first time I've known you were, yeah, you were mad I was, at me. I was very angry about that. Anyways, we put, we did put Craig on, and he succeeded in his own way, doing, you know, a very different show than the show John Stewart does today uh, for a while. And then that whole thing blew up. Why did it blow up? Because Jeff Jacobs got him, got him the slot after David Letterman. That was a whole other story. But I was very blindsided by that. Now, at the time, again, one of the lowest moments probably that, that's right, in that's your right. career. And I just want to share with you, everybody out there, how a devastating event can turn around and be one of the greatest moments of a person's career. And that certainly was for John Stewart. You know, he was hot, right? Even though he wasn't really working, <laughs> he was hot. And I knew John. And I knew him pretty well. And my instinct was, well, he's never, he's not coming to Comedy Central to take Craig Kilborn's old job. And that's, so I, I didn't really reach out. And then one day I was talking with Jimmy Miller. Jimmy Miller being a manager of Jim Carrey at the time with right. Eric Gold and also John Stewart. Yeah. And he said, you should talk to John. I think he might be interested. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, you should go, you should go talk to him. And uh, Eileen Katz and Madeline Smithberg and I uh, took John out for lunch. And, you know, we, we'd all work with him, you know, previously at MTV, go all the way back. 
and it sounded like he might want to do this. And we literally, we left the restaurant, took a cab to James Dixon's office. James Dixon was one of the greatest agents in the business. So anyway, so we drove, we went straight to his office, went straight to the William Morris offices, you know, up on 6th Avenue and walked ourselves right up to his office and said, well, let's do it, John Stewart. Let's make this happen. Uh, you know, from a timeline standpoint, he's not going to start till January. I have Kilborn through the end of the year. I ain't letting him go, which was uh, much to Les Moonves's chagrin. What's it like to get into a battle with somebody like Les Moonves over talent? He wants you to let him out. You don't want to let him out. I'm not going to let him out because I didn't have another idea originally. What really made us angry was Les was going to bring him to their upfront presentation in May. He's still working for me or for us. And I still haven't figured out what I'm going to do. And that made us crazy. So we went to court over that. And at very, literally at the last minute, we got him turned away from the CBS upfront, which I think, you know, made Les unhappy at the time. You remember the next time you ran into Les? Did he give you the cold shoulder or he was did. it? I, I pushed back and I get it. You know, we, we work in different um, uh, universes. Les is the is the crown champion of broadcast television and I'm just a cable guy. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't I don't I don't travel his orbit, but he's 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 always been very gracious to me over the years. So Craig worked through the end of December. We took the Christmas break. I subsequently left Comedy Central. John Stewart started at The Daily Show the same day I started at Fox. He did a lot better. Having represented Chappelle for eight years, I had uh, an impromptu, I guess you'd call it a lunch or a sit down at Real Food Daily with him maybe nine months ago. At the end of the meeting, I, I said to him, I have to share something with you that I never told you. About five years ago or three years ago, whenever it was, I can't remember the time, but I got a call from Doug Herzog and he calls me up and it's like right after you left the Chappelle show and things were a little dicey. And Doug says to me, listen, can you get Dave in my office? I said, sure. I think I could get him in the office. I don't see why I couldn't. He says, good, because I got my feet up on my desk here, Barry. And at the end of my desk is a paperweight with a check underneath it for $27 million. And I'd like him to come here and pick up this check. And I said to you, listen, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get him to come <laughs> to your office. And you started yelling at me, what the fuck are you talking about? Why aren't you going to get in my office? I mean, I don't understand. It's a check. Get him here. I said, I can't get him there because if he takes that check and he cashes it, you'll own him. And he doesn't want that. He wants control. Then he yells into the phone again, but it's a check for $27 million. <laughs> And after I said that, he leans into me and he looks me in the eyes and he says, that sounds a little light. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, I don't think he was ever coming back. And I think what's really extraordinary about Dave as an artist is that there isn't any artist that I know of that would turn down $50 million. Power of no. The power of no. Power of no. What's your proudest moment professionally? I'm going to go with Daily Show. You know, I came to Comedy Central. I was immediately notified Bill Maher was leaving. And I figured we have a year to do something else. I want to do a nightly show that was part Weekend Update, part Today Show, part Howard Stern. And, you know, the format that, you know... I kind of, in my head was, we're going to do headlines, we're going to have a guest, then we're going to do a tape piece. And that's how we're going to be able to afford this. What's your biggest disappointment in your professional life? You know, probably Fox. Just like the one thing I, I, I can't look back on and go, say I knocked it. You know, I've, I've been enormously fortunate um, uh, to have a, a pretty good run to date, knock on wood. 
How do people get your attention? You, you got to be a little relentless. You have to be a little bit of a pain in the ass. You have to not be willing to go away. And you just got to keep at it. And, you know, ultimately, hopefully, somebody will say yes, and you'll get your chance, get your foot in the door, and then it's up to you. But, you know, the people who go out of their way to get to me, I always try and figure out a way to spend a little time with them because I feel like, you know, this person made a real effort and they found their way to me somehow by hook or by crook. And I respect that. I'd like to hear your advice for an artist, a comedy artist, a creator, anybody out there of how to stay the course and break through. You know, I think there's so many opportunities for, you know, young people to express themselves these days. And, you know, when we were coming through, you know, I had to go to Emerson College just to get my hands on a camera, right? There, you know, now everybody's got one in their back pocket. So I, I think you just you do it. There's no reason not to be doing it every day and to be creating and to be putting it out there and taking your chances. And if nobody pays attention, nobody pays attention. Stay at it. You haven't lost anything. But, you know, anybody, any young person who comes into my office these days and wants to be in this business, and if they're not out there doing something at this point, what do you, I, I look at them cry like, Get out of my office. <laughs> like, there's no excuse for not to be writing, producing. You can do it all. It's, you can do it all on your iPhone. Like, figure it out. Go for it. If you really want it, go for it. it ain't coming to you. You got to go to it. Go get it. My next guest is Comedy Central Senior Vice President of Talent and Specials, who oversees the production and development of original specials and tentpole events, such as the Emmy-nominated Comedy Central Roast franchise, Roast Battle, Adam Devine's House Party, This Is Not Happening, the upcoming Goddamn Comedy Jam, and a diverse slate of specials like the Emmy Award-winning Night of Too Many Stars Benefit, the critically acclaimed Jeff Ross Roast Prisoners, Live at Brazos County Jail, and the Peabody Award-winning D.L. Hughley, The Endangered List. I know you're going to get a lot out of these clips with Jonas Larson. As some of you know, when I was younger, I was married and I was 26 and my wife was 23 and she passed away unexpectedly. And when something like that happens in your life and you're out in the city, you don't really know how to handle it. So you spend a lot of time in bed. You don't have a lot of people who you can trust and you don't know what to do. And in my case, there was a comedian from Rhode Island named Ed Regine, who was a used car salesman. And he would come every week, one, two days, be knocking on my door without any warning and say, come on, let's go get out of bed. We're going. We're going to a movie. We're going to do whatever. He'd send me gifts. He'd do whatever. He'd spend time with me. He'd always be there for me. That doesn't mean that other people weren't there for me. But they were back in another town far away. And he figured out a way to get me out of my funk and made me realize that there were reasons for everything, as horrible as they are, and that everything was going to be okay. And I credit him with helping me get out of where I was and supporting me when I felt things were sort of falling apart in my life and I felt like there was a possibility that I could lose everything that I'd worked hard for. And I'm grateful to him. And when it came time to helping him, whatever gigs I had when I got back on my feet, I would just give him, you're headlining here, you're doing that, you're whatever it is. 
because at that time in Boston, that meant the world to me. As I talk about Jonas, how I set this up, first thing I want to do is tell you that he has an amazing assistant. And I happen to know something personal about her, which is that she lost her brother recently who passed away. And when you're an assistant to somebody and something devastating happens like that, you got to go, you got to take care of things, but you're worried. You're worried about your job. You're working for a great guy. You want to make sure that you have your standing, but you got to go. You got to take care of yourself. And I happen to know that this man sitting across from me did everything in his power to make sure this person felt comfortable, felt loved, flowers, flowers to the home, anything she wanted, as much time as she wanted off when she came back didn't matter if she was having a tough day, needed to take a half day, whatever. He always said, whatever you need, whatever it is, you take the time, I'm there for you. When she even missed a concert for somebody who she really wanted to see, Justin Bieber, I happen to know that this man across from me arranged tickets for a concert in Miami for her to go. Yes, he knew that he was going to have a higher workload. Yes, he knew there was going to be a temp in the office or somebody coming in that was going to fuck things up probably. Not their fault. It happens. They don't know what's going on. But he was willing to take that risk that nothing was life-threatening to make sure that this person had whatever they needed, the support system they needed, the time they needed to figure things out. And she will always remember Jonas Larson. She will never, ever forget him. Like I will never forget my man, Ed Regine from Boston. If you're out there, wherever you are, whatever business you're doing, if you can be in a situation where you treat people with the kind of respect that this guy treats people with, if you can deal with somebody's personal tragedies within the office space, keep the rocks going up the hill and make that person feel like they have the greatest support staff in the world. You are going to thrive in whatever business you have. And I can guarantee you over and over again, there is no question in my mind that you will have the kind of career that Jonas Larson is having. When you do the roast, there's a certain truth to the roast that you can't es escape. You know, the roast is rooted in, in, in truth, because I think once you decide that you're ready to do the roast, you're ready to face some of the things that you have dealt with in your life. And to me, that takes balls and and it takes uh, a certain type of, of human being to be able to do that. And I respect that. And and you work with them and you work with them in a way that, you know, helps them look good and, and move past some of these issues. You know, Charlie Sheen kind of came knocking. And I think there was a lot of hesitancy about doing that roast because of where he was in his life. I just couldn't believe that we would turn this thing down. I knew it was going to be the biggest thing we'd ever done. At the same time, I also don't think we can enable someone who is going through a breakdown and, 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 um, and obviously uh, some, some drug addiction um, so we couldn't put in ourselves in a position of sort of, you know, doing that just for the sake of ratings. Um, so what I said to Kent was like, I, you know, I think our, our president at the time was not particularly thrilled about this idea. And I said to Kent, like, how can we not at least sit down and have a meeting with 
with Charlie and just see for ourselves, like, you know, like so to have a conversation with him and see if he's really out of his mind. And so I set a meeting and, and we drove to Mark's house and, and Charlie came over. He lived a few houses down. Mark Berg is his manager, also the producer of the Saw series. Great guy and longtime manager of, of, of Charlie's. And we met at his house. He had a, uh, some food ready for us. And, and we sat down, we talked a little bit about the roast and then Charlie showed up about 20 minutes later. And, you know, he walked in and I remember going like, oh boy, he does not look good. He looked a little bit like, you know, the, the crypt keeper. Uh, but he sat down and I was floored by how articulate and um, present he was and understanding of where he was right now in his life. And now with the you know recent context of the HIV thing, I realized what prompted all this stuff. But at the time, no one had any idea what, what was going on. And But sitting at that table, talking to him as this thing was blowing up around the world um, and realizing that he is, for all his flaws, a pretty unique and special human being who was very much there and very much aware of what was going on. Um, and I think Kent and I both left, left convinced that if he could go, if he could clean up, and that was part of the condition for doing the roast, and which he did, um, then we would do it. And it sort of, you know, we, we, we did the roast and it became the highest rated show we've ever done on Comedy Central. Um, but you find the humanity in people. And I think, I think that's what the roast does, you know, when it's, when it works the best is that, you know, it's not just a, a, a mean fest. It's not just people throwing insults. There's something underneath it. You know, there's the old yeah. adage of we only roast the ones we love and you find something about them that you love, even if the whole package isn't, you know, you aren't going to be best friends forever. Take Justin Bieber. This is a guy. Mm -hmm. I think he has, what does he have, 2 billion views on YouTube? <laughs> I think so, something like that. I had many opinions of him before I ever met him. And um, I had no idea what to expect, but I, I sort of expected this kind of bratty, you know, 20-year-old to come in and, and, and wreak havoc. And, you know, while I'm sure he still has, you know, that side intact somewhere, uh, I found him to be uh, very professional, very committed to this. He really understood what this was all about, that this was about him growing up, taking responsibility and, you know, showing that, you know, he, he really has a backbone. And I thought it was really brave because he knew he was going to get slaughtered. You know, he was, he was really, you know, he was really a, like, I was really worried to be honest that, you know, I didn't want him to cry, you know, not that, that, but I, I, I didn't want it to be like a bloodbath. And, um, and he impressed me by being always, he always, he showed up, he rehearsed, he knew his stuff. He was sincere. He's a very earnest guy. You know, he's not a guy that cracks a lot of jokes. So, you know, we had to teach him, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, his comedy chops. But I think the fact that he was willing to learn, like he's a pop, I mean, you know, he's worth 
hundreds of millions of dollars. Anywhere he goes, he gets mobbed. He doesn't have to do anything. You know, he could retire now and, you know, be, you know, live happily ever after. But, you know, he was really he really wanted to rehabilitate his image. You know, I don't think he did this for the fans. He did it for their parents. And and he took his medicine like a man. And I have tremendous re- uh, respect for that. And I think it was a smart move for Justin Bieber. But how do you deal with the representatives and the artists knowing somebody's going to go over the line, way over the line here somewhere? We can't control 10 people. How do you make them feel comfortable knowing that nothing's going to get on the air that's going to be bone crushing? Well, first of all, no one has edit rights on on the roast. But at the same time, we obviously the roast isn't about sort of surprising you with something that you didn't see coming Um, because we pull from the pool that's already out there in the in the public consciousness. It's it's, you know, anything you've done that's been in the news is fair game. Um, And, you know, when we sit down and when we book someone to be the roastee uh, on a roast, um, like a Charlie Sheen or a Justin Bieber or a James Franco, we have a conversation with them before anything happens. And the conversation is very simple. It's like, do you know what you're getting into? (laughs) (laughs) Do you really know what's going to be coming at you? Because we pull no punches and we always say, and, and I think this is so true. And this is why we, no one has edit rights on, on, on the roast is that you, if, if you go out there and you don't address the obvious elephants in the room, room and in many cases, there are several, um, the audience is going to call BS on it. And, and it's not going to feel authentic. It isn't, isn't going to, it's going to feel edited, but there's a very clear process that happens. You have that initial conversation and then we start the, the booking phase, finding the people uh, from their lives and the comics that are going to put the show, you know, out there and, and, and make it compelling. And the first thing we, we look for is a roast master, someone who's going to be the master of ceremony, someone who can, keep the show moving and, and be funny and, and, but also have some sort of personal connection to the roastee. Um, it's, it's an important part of the roast. Um, and it's a very hard thing to book because it requires a lot of time. There's not a lot of people that can, you can put that burden on their shoulders and, and for them to shine. Uh, so it's very important. And then of course you fill out the dais with people who are, a representatives of their lives, but also people who have a sense of humor about themselves because they're going to take some of the heat as well. Uh, and, and people who can be funny and can deliver. Uh, and I think we have a pretty good track record of, of, of picking good people and working with them to make sure that they shine. But without a doubt, everyone goes through phases of anxiety and going, what the fuck did I do? Why did I say yes to this? Because this seems, you know, a lot more anxiety inducing than I had thought when I initially said yes. Um, But also without fail, every single one of them come out on the other side (laughs) going, this was one of the most amazing um, and fun uh, uh, experiences of my life. The roast is way worse in your head before you go up on that stage than it is in real life. You can think of all the terrible things you've done in your life that you think you're going to get hit on. And then you realize that everyone who's there are rooting for you. They want you 
to be great. They want to love you. And all you have to do as a roastee is sit there and laugh and have a good time. If you do not laugh, you're not going to look good. And we always say that. Just have a good time. Laugh. Have a good time. Even if you don't think it's funny, laugh. Because that's what people at home see. That's what people in the audience see. They see you taking it. And even if it hits a little bit of a, a nerve somewhere, um, it's, it's important that you don't show that because the greater good of what the roast can actually do for someone on one level, it makes you cool because it's cool to do the roast these days. Um, but it also shows the fans and the world that you have a sense of humor about yourself and it humanizes you in a way that nothing else can do. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas. And he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Why do you think that you have the eye to know who's going to do well at a roast? Because this is one of the most difficult things about your job and your team's job. For those of you out there all over the world, you want to see a stand-up and you want to decide whether they're worthy of a special? 
you go to the improv and watch them do an hour or you have them film it and you look at it and you know they can do it. There aren't roast comedy clubs. How have you been so successful with your team finding and identifying these people where there's literally very little evidence at all that they have the muscle to roast? Um, I, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And, and the sort of look back on, on, I mean, Whitney, she was a writer. It was clear that she was a great writer on the roast. And um, she was um, a talented performer, even though, I mean, she was outperforming, but no one had seen her on a, on a big stage. But we knew she could write the material. We knew she had the voice for it, right? And, and, um, and we knew she could perform it. And, and you sort of, you take a leap of faith sometimes, but it's a gut. And you, you look at them, you go like, this, this comic will kill on the roast. There's just a certain sort of like style of their comedy that just lends itself to it. Now, Amy Schumer is probably a great example of, of, of someone who was just, I mean, she was just ready to pop at that time. We caught her right at the right moment. And, and Amy is incredibly smart and insightful, but she can say things that other people can't say. And that's what you need in a roaster is be able to, you know, charm the audience. I mean, Jeselnik, you know, he's another one started as a writer. He is a master of, of, of these twisty one-liners that, you know, he has, or these jokes that, you know, send you down a path and then, you know, he turns it around on you. I, I, you know, when he submitted material, you know, everybody submits material, not for our approval, but just so we can vet it and make sure that there's any sort of, you know, red flags or duplicated jokes or anything like that. I remember him submitting his jokes for the Sheen Roast and he sent us a sheet with 10 jokes. And that was it. And we we're like, well, don't you want to send us, you know, 15, 20 jokes so you have some to, if case some of them aren't going to work? And he's like, no, they're all going to kill. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He was right. They all killed. That's what you want from someone. You don't want someone that's going to hold back and be afraid of it. When you're up on that stage, when you're at that podium, you better bring it because that's what the audience expects and Truthfully, that's what the roastee expects. They want to just get it out there and have a good time. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name and I want you to say whatever comes to mind. It could be one word, could be a sentence. And I'm sure you're going to elaborate on this one. Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm sorry, America. In a, in a way, he is the roast's greatest success story. We could have a roastee who becomes president. I, uh, you know, not that we're taking full credit for it, but I feel like we deserve a small part of the credit for, for the, tr the rise of Trump. Um, I think Trump, Trump is a, is an interesting guy. I, I remember working on that roast and, um, and really thinking, oh, I'm going to see the real Donald Trump. I've seen that blustery guy who's out there, you know, um, hyping himself up and hyping up his projects and all that stuff. And, you know, he was sort of fun from afar, you know, but, but a bit sort of, you know, crass. And, and, and I thought like, this will be my opportunity to see the other side. And I love this about my job. I get to see the other side of, of, of these big personalities. And I'm here to tell you that there is no other side. That is him. He is that guy. He shows up. I, I'll never forget 
our promo shoot for every roast, we do this elaborate promo shoot where it gives giving the op- opportunity for the roastee to kind of poke fun of themselves, get out ahead of some of the jokes. And obviously the hair was one thing with Trump. Uh, so we had a bunch of promos that we shot. And, and um, I remember talking to his uh, longtime uh, assistant, uh, Rona, uh, who was absolute darling, has worked with him for 20 years. And she said to me, she's like, listen, Mr. Trump, that's how everybody refers to him. Mr. Trump is, uh, is very good at this. He is very efficient. He's going to show up. And he's going to do his stuff and then he's going to leave. So just be ready. He said, all right, well, we, we need like, you know, four or five hours this time. She's like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. You'll have 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, OK, um, well, we'll see what we can do. Thinking oh, I'll be able to keep him for at least an hour or two. You know, once he's there, he'll get into it. And uh, I'll never forget it. He shows up. There's like this trail of people behind him. And here he comes and he's like, OK, so what's the first thing? And he sits down and we're like, uh, OK, here's a microphone, you know, mic him up and uh, script. And he just reads it off. And he has one sort of like there's one tone, right? There's just it's just Trump. There is no other side to him. There's no nuance. There's no like that is him. And he sat down and he did his lines and we were like, OK, so we're done with this setup. We're hurrying on to the next setup. And we powered through this thing in about, I think it was less than 30 minutes. And I remember we were so fast that we had another crew that was going to come and shoot some stuff for our show open with him. And they were stuck in an elevator and we were losing him. And I remember going like, uh, Mr. Trump, um, can you just stand here for a second? I got it. And then I directed the whole show open from memory because there was no script. There was no producer. There was no nobody. Uh, I grabbed a camera <laughs> somewhere. I shot some stills and I did it all myself. And they showed up as he's leaving. And I remember going like, wow, by the, you know, but that is him. You know, he would, he would always stand around. He would, he would go, like, he, I don't think he really understood what was funny and what was not funny, but I think he trusted the process. I mean, he was great. He was a great sport about it. You know, although the best joke of the night because he didn't laugh a lot. He's not a great laugher. And I remember sort of like seeing some of the cutaways to his face. And it was like <laughs> that sort of scowl of his, you know, like and um, and Jeff Ross, uh, you know, turns around and looks at him. He goes, uh, hey, Trump, you having a good time? He's like, ah. And he goes, well, why don't you tell your face? <laughs> and that was and that was that was like the, the, the joke of the night that sort of crystallized sort of like him. For some reason, for me, for your proudest moment in show business, one of the proudest moments was the D.L. Hughley special, um, which won a Peabody. Uh, and it was just one of those moments where I had finally sort of combined two of my favorite things in the world, which is comedy and um, and documentary filmmaking. And we had found something that really worked and that show won a Peabody. Um, and it was it's just one of those amazing moments. I'll, I'll never forget it. When we found out it was just it was such great because it, it was a it was a project that, you know, you know, I championed over there along with Kent. You know, we, we had really sort of fallen in love with this idea and and seeing it sort of go all the way and, and, and win this prestigious award was a really proud moment. 
Awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I don't think it can be distilled into a singular event, but I think really seeing, you know, working from the very early days of uh, non-scripted and reality television, when it was a real sort of, you know, boom town and a lot of great stuff and actually really creative, funny, uh, interesting concepts and seeing that whole uh, genre kind of take a dip into territory that I was not a comfortable with and using production methods that did not sit well with me and I didn't want to be part of it. It, it was a real, it was really disillusioning for me and a real turning point in my career because I was like, is that who I want to be? And I think I have something. And maybe it was just the projects that I was involved with. It's not the entire genre. Good stuff is being produced. But some of the projects I was involved with, it just was not something I would watch. And it was very, very disillusioning. Um, uh, and, um, and I'm glad that uh, I found my way out. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person in some obscure country somewhere in the world? Just trying to figure it out. I think for anybody starting out in entertainment, especially someone like myself who came in with no connections, I knew nobody, nobody, I know I had no built in network. I think you, you, you have to just, you have to start, you have to commit and, and don't be afraid to zigzag. Take the opportunities that come your way, good or bad. It doesn't matter. You're going to learn every step of the way. And as long as you learn, you're going to be fine. And as long as you have a, a little bit of talent, obviously there has to be, you know, something behind it. But if you're smart and you have some talent, stick with it, man. You're going to be fine. There's a lot of people out here wanting to do the same thing. There's a lot of competition going in for the same jobs and all that stuff. But the ones that ultimately went out are the ones that outlast all the others and stick with it and never give up. And don't worry about zigzagging through life. Like I, I never finished college. I dropped out um, because I went with this crazy dream and I believed in it. And I never believed that failure was an option, even though I've had, you know, many little bumps along the way. You, you, you plow through them. You just don't, I mean, don't let it affect you. Don't let it get you down because tomorrow's a new day and new things will, will come your way. I really believe that if you are going to be a really good and effective executive at a network, you should have some basic knowledge of how this stuff is made. And ideally, you should have made it yourself so that you can speak from a place of actually knowing as opposed to giving notes on stuff where you're giving notes that people are going to roll their eyes at. That's why network executives get a bad, bad rap. And by the way, not all of them are, are not good, but they are, they're, they are, some of them, some are inexperienced when it comes to actual production. They may know how the network runs, but they don't know how to, the television component actually, you know, gets made in the trenches. And I think that's why someone like Sharon Levy, who has been in the trenches and I've been in the trenches with her, um, you sort of, you get a certain respect for that and you understand this is how it's made. This is how these things cut together. You know, if you don't know that it's really hard to give notes on something if you, if you have no idea how it's really made. And as far as young comics and, and, and writers and, and directors, I think 
make stuff, go out there, go in the clubs. I mean, you know this better than anybody. Be out there, be visible, continue to write. Don't just do the same material over and over and over again. Continue to write new stuff, replenish that well, keep, you know, growing your voice, finding your voice out there. I think a lot of comics, especially young, you know, comics that are starting out, you know, tend to emulate their, their idols, right? They, very rarely do you find someone like a Pete Davidson who's 20 years old and, and has a very distinct voice. Most of the time, they're, they're, they're trying to find their voice by doing someone else's kind of style. And, and the only way to find your own style is to keep doing it. And eventually, you'll find the, the groove that makes you tick. And I think it's work hard, work frequently, you know, don't procrastinate and keep writing. I mean, the writing process is really the most, I mean, it's like a guy like Bill Burr, who's just cranking out specials, like almost once, once a year. That's a lot of work, especially at the level that he's operating. He's one of the greatest, you know, um, standups out there. And, and he is just putting out unbelievable special after the other. And that's because he's out there and he's working through his material and he works hard and there is no substitute for that. My final guest of the big three is the president of content development and original programming at Comedy Central, who oversees the development and production of all original content produced by the number one brand in comedy, where he's responsible for incubating new voices and concepts across all the network screens. Since taking over, Alterman and his development team have more than doubled the amount of original series on the air than at any time in the history of the network, creating bona fide franchises for Comedy Central, including groundbreaking series like Workaholics, Kroll Show, Brickleberry, Nathan For You, and Emmy-winning Key and Peele, Drunk History, and Inside Amy Schumer. This man is an inspiration. And you're going to see why. Kent Alterman. In the early 90s, the Just for Laughs Festival. I had come up here with Chappelle when he was a young kid. And everything went wrong. Every single thing went wrong with the trip. The ticket was wrong. The flight was wrong. Everything. And we got the, the car service. The van didn't pick us up. We got here. I'm a very calm person. And Chappelle, one of the nicest, sweetest, amazing men I've ever met in my life. And when we got there, you'd think that we would be stressed out and angry, but we were very calm. Two people were doing the directions for the Just for Laughs Festival. Debbie Siegel and Maureen Terrence said, it's unbelievable. You're so calm. We fucked everything up. I mean, we're so sorry. How is it possible that you could be this calm and whatever? I said, well, this is just the way we are. And I just, as I was leaving, I said, what do you do when somebody comes up here and they're an asshole? How do you handle that? Because you're the face of this company. You have to make sure that people know that they feel safe when they come to this table. She says, we have our ways. And I said, well, what do you do when somebody's an asshole? She said, you see that guy over there? I said, yeah, yeah, I see him. You see that name tag that he has hanging from his neck? Yeah. She says, look closely. For everyone we don't like, we take the cord of the name tag and we make it twice as short and then we punch the hole off to the side so the name tag goes diagonal like that 
So when everybody in the festival who works here walks around, we know who the assholes are. I'm getting nervous how this relates to me. (laughs) So in relation to my guest, Kent Alterman, today, who I've known probably my whole career, he's working at a company where every single person that is there when you walk in is wonderful. Every single person makes you feel like a million bucks. Every single person treats talent like they're gold. And after I met with Kent recently and I pitched him a show with a new group of executives that he brought on, I emailed Doug Herzog, who's the president of the Viacom Entertainment Group who oversees Comedy Central and Spike and TV Land. And I said, Doug, I'm just blown away. I just had a pitch meeting with Kent and his new team, and they're just really amazing. And he emailed me back, Barry, we have a no-asshole policy here at Comedy Central. And the reason I say that to all of you out here tonight is the fact is, is that you all know somebody out there who has a sense of entitlement, who's done something that isn't right, that treats people poorly, that tweets out the wrong thing, that goes into a situation and gets in their own way and complicates winning. So if I had any message today relating to my guest, Kent Alterman, it's the fact that the way he runs his business and the way he runs his life and his team, he doesn't complicate winning. It's stress-free. He's a wonderful man. And he's an example to everybody in the business. If you want to win, treat people right, and the world will treat you right. My first real break uh, came when some friends of mine uh, had a copy of the pilot that Michael Moore had done for TV Nation, and he had sold it to uh, NBC as a summer replacement series in BBC Two in the UK. And uh, they basically said to me, you know, we thought of you. It's like got your sensibility and it's a smart ass comedic thing with political, you know, content. And um, but we don't really know what you would do on it because I really didn't have any career at that point. Um, So there was a woman who had been in that development group uh, who actually had done things like that. She had uh, been a producer and a director for, um, you know, news magazine shows. And so I called her and I I said, hey, you you know, she had said to me, I love working with you. If we could ever work together again, it'd be great. And so I said, okay, here it is. Do you want to be partners? And we'll be, you know, producer, director, partners to pitch ourselves to this show. So I called, uh, I got, I had the number for Michael Moore's production office. I got his assistant on the phone and uh, just talked as if I knew what what I was talking about and said, oh, I understand that Michael is meeting filmmakers and my partner and I want to come in and, you know, meet with him. And and she just said, oh, OK, uh, yeah, how about Tuesday at 4.30? <laughs> so, um, so we had, you know, sat down and uh, formulated a bunch of ideas to pitch to him. And I really loved the pilot. And, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, Michael Moore's uh, film, his documentary films, uh, at that time, he had, Roger and Me was what put him on the map. This was the next thing he did. And basically it was a sort of, you know, 20, 20, 60 minutes kind of show. But each piece was a little short uh, Michael Moore film, basically, with him and other correspondents who would be on camera. So um, 
there. So anyway, we went to the meeting, pitched a bunch of ideas. Basically, I just talked to Michael about what I liked about the pilot and where I thought the series could go. And then I had developed maybe eight or 10 ideas that I threw at him. And there was one in particular, I'd read an article in the New York Times about um, there was a court case in Jasper, Texas, and Texas is my home state, so it probably got my attention, where uh, it, it's a town that had always been segregated, not segregated. There were literally no blacks in this town. It was a really racist, hardcore town in eastern Texas, and uh, there was a housing development that was built where a judge ruled that to be to get federal funding uh, it had to be integrated. So they moved a black family and then, then the clan, the local clan kind of rallied around harassing them and protesting them and trying to keep them out. And so they got, there was a court injunction where the clan people had to stay at least a thousand feet away from this housing development to not harass these people. So what did the clan do? They went to the, whatever department of transportation, wherever, where you, you know, those adopt a highway programs, they adopted, they petitioned to adopt a two mile stretch of highway that went along this housing development. So it was mired in the courts of who, whose, whose rights precede whose. Uh, so I pitched to Michael, like, well, let's go down there and see how good the clan are at keeping the highways clean and how good they are keeping their, their sheets so white and, you know, all that. So he really loved that idea. And, um, so yeah, th so basically what happened was, he said, Oh, I love, I love this idea. You totally get the show. We got to work this out. You need to meet with the show producer and the supervising producer next. So we had a meeting there and basically the way they were set up is they had uh, a writing staff and then a filmmakers who were sort of the producer directors. They mostly came from documentary film, Jerry Kupfer, uh, who's gone on to do a lot of really cool stuff. He said, Oh, well, we're, I'm not bringing in new people until we have two stories assigned because I don't want to um, have someone go off. It doesn't work out. They have to start over. And even if they shoot a piece, the second one's already developed and ready to go. So we just need to get your second piece uh, assigned and then we're going to bring you in. And we worked out a deal and the whole thing. And so then uh, week after week would go by, they'd call us in for more meetings to talk about what the other piece might be. And, and it kind of dragged on forever. And uh, meanwhile, at a certain point, um, my producing partner uh, was getting worried this isn't ever going to happen. And she had an offer from Turner to, to uh, produce and direct a documentary for them. And she said, okay, if I don't know by Friday, I'm really sorry, but I'd rather do this, but I'm going to have to bail. And so I was just pressuring, trying to keep, you know, I was getting really desperate. And, and finally Friday came along and she said, I'm really sorry. So I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think I could do this on my own? And she said, well, no. <laughs> and uh, I said, why not? And she said, well, you've never really directed before. And just in terms of, you know, and producing, scheduling how long to do interviews for and knowing how to shape the story and getting coverage when you're shooting and then... And she kind of just started talking through basically all the steps of what that job is. And nothing, even though I hadn't technically done them, uh, I, nothing felt like a foreign language. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? If, if, but, you know, just my own humility just by trying. So the next meeting I went to, I went by myself. And um, at one point, 
Kathleen, the producer, said, oh, where's your partner? And I said, oh, we don't always work together, uh, <laughs> which we really never really had. Uh, and she's doing a feature, so it's just me. And then I just kind of changed the subject and kept talking. And so at a certain point, they had assigned an associate producer researcher to the clan piece, and they she started working on it. And then I got this paranoid feeling that, oh, they're so disorganized and they already have a staff of people there that are going out and shooting pieces. I know what's going to happen. They're just going to say, hey, can we give you some money for that idea? And we're going to just going to do it ourselves and keep moving. So I decided that I set my own deadline of a Friday. This is like weeks later. Uh, if I'm just going to show up on Monday. So I went to the office. I'd been there so much. I saw who was doing what and how they were organized. And I went to Jerry and I said, Hey, Kathleen told me to talk to you about getting a computer, uh, you know, place to sit to start on the clan piece while they're getting my second story going. And then I went to Kathleen. I said, Hey, I'm assuming, you know, Jerry brought me in to get started on the clan piece <laughs> and said, I need to talk to you about getting a second piece. And it worked. They didn't really compare notes. And by the end of that first day, I had a second piece assigned. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically what you're saying is the way to get where you're going right up front is the lie. I have a whole history of, of getting jobs that I had no business getting. So I'm sure being on this podcast is one of them. <laughs> How did you get to the point where you walk in the Comedy Central, you've just been a senior producer on TV Nation, and Doug Herzog, who's overseeing everything now, who you work with now, said, hey, you're my guy. Well, nothing happens and like it, everything in a moment. It's all, you know evolution and steps and all that. So what my job was really to start finding, you know, talent and material and things and developing them. It was a different time at Comedy Central than it was much smaller. And they really wanted me, I think, you know, to, to really, uh, you know, develop and then oversee the shows like Strangers with Candy and Upright Citizens Brigade. They didn't have have showrunners. I was the showrunner de facto. And it was, I was, it was slightly schizophrenic to be sort of this development person, but also to always be down at the production office. I consider you more an artist than an executive. How do you go from putting these films together, which some of them were nominated for Academy Awards, and you walk in the office one day and you say, you know what, I want to direct a comedy film now. Nothing happens like in a vacuum all at once. You know, it's a process, right? So b basically my sort of, uh, you know, career at New Line, um, the first project I did was Elf. Um, and, uh, and that came about, Toby had in a development meeting said, you know, gave an assignment next week, come in with... Uh, people that we're not in business with that we should be, whether you someone that people forgot about or emerging talent or whatever. And the two people I had on my list were Will Farrell and Steve Carell. And I had met Will pretty briefly, but when he was on SNL, he had done an episode of Strangers. He was the guest star in one episode. So I met him then. And Steve Carell, you know, was a correspondent on The Daily Show, and I got to know him in particular when we spent some time in New Hampshire during one of the election, you know, primaries, uh, and we hit it off. And so, uh, you know, Will had been, been on SNL. He hadn't done any films yet except the SNL movies, you know, like Night at the Roxbury. He hadn't done Old School yet or Anchorman or anything. And Carell, no one knew who he was, and so that was kind of a non-starter. And, um, someone, one of my colleagues Kale, named Kale Boyder came up to me after this meeting and said, I love Will Ferrell. 
can I work with you on the bread? Let's find some, you know? And, and, uh, so Kale, you know, grew up in new line and really knew every script out there. And he showed me, he said, here's four scripts you should read. And one of them was, um, the, the, uh, spec script, uh, called elf. And, um, I thought, oh, this, this is the one. It's a perfect premise for what Will does comedically, playing this very sincere guy who in, unintentionally wreaks havoc around him. And so it was a long process uh, of getting that movie made. I had to go to the marketing and distribution people and really convince them. Like, you know, I think it was that year um, the second Santa Claus movie had come out. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure some people, obviously a lot of people loved it. It wasn't so much for me, but it made $140 million. And I thought, okay, these family Christmas movies, if they're half good. And I was naive, but I just told the marketing people, you know, hey, we're going to have 6'4 Will Ferrell in an elf costume on a poster. Who's not going to see that? But by the way, I think we can make it good, you know. So I got support to get it greenlit. So that, I I got to know Will through that process. And... um New Line was interested in doing a sequel. New Line made a big aggressive offer. There was an interest from Will, and he was the one who said, I'd be interested in Kent. You know, I, I think he probably figured Favreau's already on to bigger and better, and who wants to do a sequel, you know? And over time, you know, again, as an executive, I was still trying to get more projects going. And so I thought, okay, we don't really have a lot of steam going on this. And so I called Jimmy and I said, you know, I don't get the sense Will's really totally committed to this, you know, are there, maybe there's other projects we should be going again, just as an executive, try to get a Will Ferrell project going, not as anything to do with me being a director. And I said, what about that ABA project? Cause Scott Armstrong, who had done a lot of the great production rewriting on elf and had become a friend. He had pitched this project about doing a comedy about the old ABA. And he knew we had talked a lot. We're both big basketball fans. And I'd grown up uh, in San Antonio when the Spurs came in the old ABA days. And I didn't know if it would really be a real project, but I thought, well, I'd be damned if someone else is going to develop it. So I bought it. It was a one line pitch and it just was dormant for a while because Everyone was busy on other things. So I asked Jimmy, what about that, that ABA project? Because we had told Will about it, and he seemed to, he said, oh, yeah, he asked me about that every now and then. So basically, um, you know, he said, do you have a script? No. And uh, Will was shooting Talladega Nights, and he said, you should come down and meet with Will and try to get a script. So Scott was still living in New York, brought him out. Kale, Scott, and I kind of hunkered down and really beat out the story. And then Scott would go madly writing. And so by the time that meeting came about, I think we had like 60 or 70 pages and will, you know, read them early in the morning before shooting. We had breakfast. He was totally down for it. You know, he has an amazing work ethic. And, um, and so we got enough encouragement to keep going and we kept going. We turned in the script and then at a certain point, um, you know, I got a call from Jimmy, um, I think on a Wednesday, well, actually, no, the Wednesday, my wife and I were, had been trying to have a baby for a while and it wasn't happening. And, um, so on a, on a Wednesday, I found out that she was pregnant, which was, you know, you know what that means. And, and then the next day I got the call from Jimmy, the due date for our baby was new year's Eve, which is also our anniversary. And, uh, the next day I got a call from Jimmy, Will's, Will's committing to it. He wants to do semi-pro, wants you to direct it. 
and uh, wanted to do it next. So it will start, you know, January 4th, whatever that Monday. And I thought, of course, these things that have been germinating for a while would happen at the same time. Talk about coming back to Comedy Central. So when I first came in, uh, you know, look, these weren't like people's internal rumblings. I'm big on communicating. And so when we would have development meetings, I put it on the table like, okay, there's some people in here I know and some I don't and we don't know each other. And so now let's work together. I don't have an agenda to fire anyone. I, I don't believe in that cleaning house. I don't believe in new person comes in. Okay. Every project that's been in development is dead to me. You know, the first thing that I was involved with picking up was workaholics. I didn't develop it. But when I first started, Doug and Michelle showed me five or six pilots and that was the one I thought, okay, this one has a lot of merit and that's how they felt too. Um, I wasn't going to be like, well, I didn't develop that. I'm not going to do that. I don't believe in that. I'm going to a little word association. You tell me a little story about how something happened, what went down and let's start with some of the comedy central things inside Amy Schumer. Uh, so, uh, when I first came back to the network, uh, you know, I'd spent whatever it was almost a decade in the film world and I stayed in touch with comedy, but not so much stand up comedy. I really had lost touch. And when I first came back, I started immersing myself in one of the first people that, resonated for me was Amy. When the Charlie Sheen roast came around, uh, Jonas Larson and I talked to uh, Charlie and his manager at the time, Mark Berg, about putting Amy on. And they were like, nah, they, you know, they, they didn't know her. And they were very resistant at first. And finally, I just forced the issue. And I said, look, this is when you're going to have to trust me on. I guarantee you she's going to kill. So I really, you know, kind of put it out on the line. But also, I had no doubts. I didn't feel I was risking anything. I knew she would. And she killed, she hit so hard that that was when Charlie was putting his 1090 show together. And they went immediately to Amy and asked her if she wanted to be in it. That's <laughs> how well that went. Drunk history. Uh, drunk history, you know, existed on uh, Funny or Die as shorts. Uh, they came in and pitched. And, you know, they were just very articulate about how they could expand it into a, a bona fide half hour show. And we did a pilot. It really worked. And uh, the rest is inebriated history. It's doing great now in second season. The Kroll Show. Uh, Nick Kroll is, uh, also had been doing shorts. I knew him for a, a while. I knew him as a standup. I knew him socially. Uh, he had been doing some of his characters, um, you know, Bobby bottle service and rich dicks, uh, as internet shorts. And, um, originally we were developing rich dicks and, uh, to be like maybe a 15 minute show. And I loved that, but I just thought he has so much more. And so we basically went to him and said, well, you know, let's expand it to a half hour show, a sketch show, and for it to be Rich Dicks just to be a part of it. Key and Peel. Uh, Key and Peel, Jim Sharp and Gary Mann brought them in, some of my colleagues, and they had met each other. I guess they met each other previously, but worked together on Mad TV. And they were in a phase of just, they had an opportunity to go to Fox to develop something, but we really believed in them and made the case of, you know, turn down the network money, come here where we're going to get you on the air. And there was an interesting development process. It started, it really evolved a lot as it went. They originally pitched a thing called key versus peel, and they would take two different sides of an argument and 
then there was another, there were a few different versions, but it ultimately kind of led to what the show is. Talk about the new show, Broad City. Broad City started as a internet shorts, Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer doing uh, part of the UCB world. Uh, they actually pitched the show originally uh, to us with Amy Poehler as the executive producer. Amy had sort of come on board. She had done... Uh, uh, you know, an appearance on, on one of their episodes. Actually, they, they ended up selling it to FX and they developed it originally there. FX decided not to move forward. And I was happy to get the opportunity to have the chance to work with them. We redeveloped the pilot script, shot it, and here we are. And it's been amazing how quickly it's just catalyzed with, with the audience and the press and everything. And those girls are super talented. Talk about At Midnight. At Midnight, that was another interesting development process. So there were two different projects in development. One was called Tweeter Dome, and it was created by uh, Tom Lennon and Ben Garant. And Tom, who never wanted to be the host of the show, but for the sake of the pilot, said, I'll do the pilot, but I won't be really available for the show. So we did, we did that pilot. Then we, we simultaneously, were, we were developing another pilot called Hardwired, with Chris Hardwick, which was also trying to utilize social media and all that. And there were certain things that worked and didn't work about both of them. And we realized that if we expand this Twitter dome idea out to not just be about Twitter, but to be about Instagram and, you know, Reddit and all kinds of social media. And, but Chris Hardwick is, you know, Nerdist Empire and the perfect person to really come in and, and, and front this show. We, said, hey, let's explore this about merging these two things together into one thing, and that became At Midnight. Tell me your greatest holy shit story. Greatest holy... Well, I'll go way back. When I first started uh, in New York, we did you know a lot of movie marketing and one sheets, and there was a film called The Freshman which, with Marlon Brando and Matthew Broderick. It was shooting up in Toronto, and uh, our West Coast office was doing all the work, but something happened. I think the art director got sick or something. He couldn't make it to the photo shoot. And it was uh, uh, Greg Gorman, a big Hollywood photographer, was the photographer. And so they sent me up to kind of fill in for him. And I was really disconnected from the process. And um, so I was, you know, Marlon Brando, need I say more? And, and I know I've always been someone who sort of treats people, whether they work below me, sideways, above me, whether they're famous, not just as people. I think, you know, uh, that's the, I feel like the thing that unites us all is we're all humans with insecurities and what makes us unique is that we express them in different ways. Uh, so I've always been good about not being intimidated. I might be intimidated by a situation, but not by people so much. But I really psyched myself out with Marlon Brando. And uh, I just in the couple of days before I started like rewatching all his old films and I like <laughs> it got so big in my head. So I flew up to Toronto the day before the shoot. I was so buzzed and nervous. I couldn't fall asleep. We start the day. Everyone's meeting each other. And right before we came, he had just done an interview with a reporter in a, for the, one of the Toronto newspapers, just throw, detonating a bomb on this movie about how the people, the director and producer, I think, were racist and this. I don't know. Some kind of controversy going on. It could not have been more tense. And we get in this circle around him, and they start showing him 
the comps that we were going to shoot the photography for. And it was a bunch of people, the producer, the director, him, Matthew, me, publicist from Columbia film studio. Anyway, there were so many people and he looks at it and he goes, who, who's, who's responsible <laughs> for this? Who's in charge of this? And I thought, well, I'm the underling here. I'm not going to say anything, but no one said anything. So I stepped forward and I said, uh, well, I'm not in charge of it, but I'm with the design firm. We came up with these concepts and here, you know, and he starts asking me questions. What was the intention with this one? And so I started having to answer his questions and he goes, okay. And then we had uh, a photo session and the only person that he showed any respect to was me. And I realized he was just testing everyone. Who's going to step up here? And uh, so we have this photo session, which was still pretty tense. And then he went back to shooting and we finished other stuff we were doing. And when I was leaving, I was just walking out and I kind of glanced over where they were shooting. And he looks at me and he, got, he, he you know, motions me to come over. And I, I come over there and he goes, I just want to thank you. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I want to thank you. And uh, he said, I'm just sorry I couldn't have been more help to you. And I go, you did fine. <laughs> so that was a pretty good holy shit moment for me. That's proudest professional moment. My proudest professional <laughs> moment? Uh, just the way that my personal and professional life intersected on Semi-Pro. You know, I found out one day apart being in a position to be able to direct this movie and have my wife and daughter I'll cry now. Uh, um, be there on set, you know, in my trailer on the brakes and coming out. It was amazing. I'll never duplicate that. You look out at the people here and some of these people are young performers. Some of them are young executives. What advice would you have for the performer as well as the executive to get to the next level and overcome and persevere. You know, I don't know if I'm anything to aspire to. I feel like I'm a reflection of someone who never had a career plan. I, I, and I think what worked, what has worked for me is just being open, like driven and ambitious and working hard and all the rest. But, uh, you know, I also feel like I'm just, uh, and maybe I'm motivated by this, feel like I've never achieved my potential. Um, and, you know, and that's part of what never had a career path, just one opportunity leads to the next. So I guess my advice in some ways is not different for the artist, you know, or the executive. Um, I think that, uh, you know, of course, the more you can focus yourself, the better. But ultimately, I think that no experience is invalid and every experience leads to the next one. And I think just remaining open and I and, and true to yourself, it sounds very cliche, but I think that there's very few things that cannot be taken away from a, another human. Uh, and one of them is your identity and your point of view. And I think that whether it's someone who wants to be a, a development executive or a comedian or an actor or a writer or whatever, the most the, the most potent thing you have is your point of view. Hopefully it's it's worthwhile and, and it's going to be of interest to other people. But I would tell people, never tell other people what you think they want to hear. You really got to tell them what you believe because no one does know anything as the Goldman book was, you know, no one knows nothing. It's absolutely true. Everything is subjective and there's so many different factors that go into things working or not working that your, your currency is your point of view. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed this special episode, the best of Comedy Central, as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you're in the New York area, come see Industry Standard November 5th and 6th at the Friars Club at 3 o'clock on that Saturday and Sunday with Jeannie and Jim Gaffigan and many other special guests. You're going to really enjoy it a lot. You get tickets there at 212-751-7272, 212-751-7272. And as a bonus for all of you in the tri-state area during this weekend, I'm going to be giving away free tickets to both shows on Saturday and Sunday at the Friars Club. Just tweet me a photo of what your face looks like when you're listening to the sound of my voice at Barry Katz, and hopefully you'll be a winner. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions. Or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Guy Chatcher from Church Point, Louisiana. Guy, you are a JFK winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on John Paul Fair, F-A-O-U-R, July 15, 2013. Heading reads, no biting man, five exclamation points. Home run, three exclamation points. Cats is a hit, five exclamation points. Love this episode, one exclamation point. And it reads, Barry Katz is my life coach, no biting man. Oh, going with the inside jokes. Well, John Paul Fair, you are a winner. Congratulations. This has been another episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.